It is of the utmost importance to state at the outset that all Scripture is inspired, that is, breathed out or spoken by God, through various individuals, without error, under the superintendence, that is, the leading and directing of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21 The Bible is a historical book. Since it is a historical book, it can be tested by the historical method used to determine the validity of its claims. Now, the historical method is composed of three basic tests. First, there is the internal test, to determine whether the document agrees or contradicts with itself. Second, there is the external test, which determines whether other historical records can validate this document. And then third, there is the bibliographical test that examines the number of copies, elapsed time between the original documents and copies, and degree of accuracy between the copies. The Bible, including the book of Genesis, passes each of these tests. As well, it should be underscored that while the Bible is not a science book, when it speaks scientifically, it speaks the truth. Though evolution is widely accepted as a fact, it is indeed only a theory, one which cannot be tested by the scientific method. The scientific method studies the repeatable and the testable. Since evolution is neither repeatable or testable, it remains a theory and not a scientific fact. The claim that the Earth is some 3 to 5 billion years old, based on rock formations, fossil records, and distant galaxies that are millions of light years away, is just that, a claim. The Bible is a historical book that, according to the historical method, is true. By studying the Toledots, or family records registered in the scriptures, one arrives at a date of approximately 6,000 years old. Regarding rock formations, one simply has to look at catastrophic events such as Mount St. Helen to see that it does not take billions of years to produce these geological formations, but rather minutes. Scientists have also developed a means of measuring how many meteors and meteorites will pass Earth and through its atmosphere in a given year. As a meteorite passes through Earth's atmosphere, it burns up and produces oxides, which form a dust that settles on Earth. This dust is measurable. One should find this dust throughout the various rock layers of the geologic column. Instead, they have not found any meteorite dust except in the last few layers. Furthermore, if the evolutionist theory of uniformitarianism is true, there should be a layer of meteorite dust 54 feet deep over the entire surface of the Earth. However, there is no such layer. Regarding the fossil record, the proven historical record of Scripture states that death did not enter the world until after the entrance of sin into the world. Fossils are the records of dead things. Thus, they do not appear until after the fall. As well, fossils are formed when there are rapid burial and lithification, which requires a global catastrophe. Genesis 6 records such a global catastrophe called a worldwide flood. Furthermore, the fossil record is a major problem for the evolutionist. If the, indeed there is a gradual change from lower life forms to higher life forms, then where are the transitional fossils? There are none, because there are no transitional life forms. Evolutionist Edred J. H. Corner stated, To the unprejudiced, the fossil record of plants is in favor of special creation. Can you imagine how an orchid, a duckweed, a palm have come from the same ancestry? And have we any evidence for this assumption? The evolutionist must be prepared with an answer 
but I think that most would break down before an inquisition. Contrary to the theory of evolution, the historical record, known as the scriptures, states that God created everything after its own kind. Genesis 1.11 Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. Genesis 1.21 God created the sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the water swarmed after their kinds, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now the term kind, the Hebrew term min, refers to a fixicity of a species. The fixicity of a species means that within a group of tomatoes there are various species of tomatoes, but they are still of the same kind. Tomatoes come in different shapes, sizes, and colors, but they're all still tomatoes. They never become anything other than tomatoes. Hence, within a kind, there may be changes or variations. We would call this microevolution. But there is never change from one kind into a different kind, which is called macroevolution. And when you refer to evolution, this is what most people think of, change from one kind into a different kind. Now, regarding the argument that since galaxies that are millions of light years away from Earth and light travels at a rate of 186,000 million miles per second, or 700 million miles per hour, it would take billions of years to arrive at Earth. However, this argument is easily debunked when we accept the simple truth of Scripture, which states that God created the universe with age. Now, creating with age is not merely the appearance of age, but age in the sense of functional maturity. For example, God created Adam and Eve with functional maturity. He told Adam and Eve to reproduce offspring. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Creation with functional maturity indicates Adam and Eve were fully formed physically and sexually to produce children. As well, God created the plants and animals with the maturity to begin reproducing almost immediately. Again, listen to Genesis 1.12 and 22. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Now, regarding the speed of light and the measurement of time, light requires a span of time to cross between two distances. It takes the light of the moon, 1.3 seconds to reach the earth, the light of the sun, 8.3 minutes to reach earth, and from earth to the edge of the observable universe, it takes 46.5 billion years. However, if God created all things and created all things with functional maturity, is it not possible that God can make the light of those things appear immediately. Since God created light as well as space, time, and matter, then indeed he can make it appear anywhere he so desires. Friends, the universe is not the byproduct of natural processes. Instead, it is the supernatural power of God. By looking at the word, the witness, and the work of creation, we will see the supernatural power of God behind creation. Hence, Genesis 1, 1-31 examines the phrase, God created. Now, in order to understand what is meant by the phrase, God created, let us first consider the word of creation. The word of creation. In Genesis 1, 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, and 29, the scriptures plainly declare that God said. God said.
Let's take a moment and read through those verses. Genesis 1-3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1-6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Genesis 1-9, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarm of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. Again, Genesis 1, 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, and 29. The scriptures plainly declare that God said. Now the term said, hamar, means to say, to think, or command. The verb is in the justive mood, meaning that God did not simply speak creation into existence. He commanded it into existence. As the psalmist says in Psalm 33 and verse 9, For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Again, the psalmist says in Psalm 148, 2-5, Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. God created by divine fiat. Command. Ex verbum Deo. The abilities to think and to command shows God's intellect and volition. God is independent of his creation. He thought it and he commanded it. No one gave God the idea to create and no one created it for him. He decreed it. He designed it. He declared it. He did not address someone or something else to do it. The phrase God said could be rendered as God said to himself. Listen very carefully. Each time God speaks, Something happened. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be an expanse of water, and there was an expanse of water. Let there be dry land, and there was dry land. Let there be stars, and there were stars. Let there be fish and birds, and there were fish and birds. Let there be cattle and creeping things, and there were cattle and creeping things. This is how powerful God is. It is as if God himself is sitting in the driver's seat of a voice-activated universe. He simply spoke nature into existence, and that implies effortlessness and absolute sovereignty over nature. Genesis 1 is clear that the heavens and the earth, indeed the entire universe, is created by divine degree or fiat. That God spoke time, space, and matter into existence means that he did not create from something previously made. The universe did not evolve through random mutations or natural selections. When God speaks, he speaks specifically and systematically, and there is nothing random in his creative work. As well, because it is God that is speaking, it is not natural, but supernatural. Not only does Genesis 1 reveal that God said, but also that God called in Genesis 1, 5, 
8, and 10. Genesis 1, 5, 8, and 10. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. God called the expanse heaven. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. Now the verb called, kara, means to appoint or to name. And to name means to declare sovereignty over it. Consider Psalm 147, verse 4. He counts the number of stars. He gives names to all of them. In Isaiah 40, in verse 26, he says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. None of them is missing. You see, God declared his absolute sovereignty over the light and the darkness, the heavens, the stars, and the dry lands, and the seas, and over time and space in both its celestial and terrestrial dimensions. Interestingly, by bringing the animals to Adam to name them, God was signifying humanity's sovereignty over the animal kingdom. He says in Genesis 2:19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Now the importance of naming was also important in the ancient Near Eastern culture, where lack of a name is equivalent to non-existence. As well, naming something was associated with its creation and its submission to the one who named it. Accordingly, the Egyptians viewed the time before creation as a period when no name of anything had yet been named. The word of creation, said and called, demonstrate that God created. The witness of creation, saw, also demonstrates that God created. Hence the phrase God saw in Genesis 1, 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and 31 underscores the witness to creation. Again, Genesis 1, 4, 1, 10, 1, 12, 1, 18, 1, 21, 1, 25, and 1, 31 underscores the witness to creation. God saw that the light was good. God saw that it, the dry land and seas, was good. God saw that the plant life and vegetation was good. God saw that the sun, moon, and stars were good. God saw that the bird and the fish were good. God saw that the cattle and creeping things were good. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In each of those verses, the term saw, ra'ah, means to inspect or perceive. As God contemplated each creative act, he inspected it and perceived that it was good. Good, tov, means fit for a purpose, and also without flaw. The prophet says in Isaiah 41 and verse 7, So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the smoldering, It is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. At each juncture of God's creative work, he gives witness to the fact that what he had created had an assigned purpose and that it was adequate to accomplish its purpose. From a theological perspective, this indicates the absence of sin and the curse from creation. That God perceived his creative work as good indicates that God took pleasure in what he had made. So the word of creation, said and called, and the witness of creation, saw, proves that God created, as stated in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Finally, the work of creation 
created, separated, made, placed, and formed, also proves that it was God, not a Big Bang or any other purported theory that created the heavens and the earth. Consider first that God created in Genesis 1, 1, 21, and 27. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 1, 21, and 27. The first work of creation, again, is seen in the phrase, God created, in Genesis 1, 1, 21, and 27. Created, bara means to fashion or produce something which never existed before. What God commanded into existence was not made from previously existing matters. Paul declares in Hebrews 11:3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now the term bara is used only 48 times in the Hebrew scriptures and always in connection to God. Creation from no pre-existent material is only used of God. In Genesis 1, bara is used of God creating the universe, the sea creatures, and humankind. The specific usage of this term indicates a new stage within the creative narrative. The use of bara in Genesis 1-1 specifically points to the creation by divine fiat. The term's usage in Genesis 1:21 indicates a new juncture in the creation narrative with the development of animated life. And Baral in Genesis 1:27 marks the creation of a creature in God's image. The second work of creation is seen in the phrase God separated in Genesis 1:4, and 1:21. God saw that the light was good and God separated a light from the darkness. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years, and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Again, the second work of creation is seen in the phrase, God separated. Separated, badal, means to sever or divide into parts. It carries the idea of setting boundaries. First, there is a separation of light from darkness. Thus, God sets the limits of a day as evening and morning, or night and day. Jesus confirms this truth in John eleven nine. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? Thus, if there are twelve hours in a day, then there are twelve hours in a night. By dividing the light and the darkness into two twelve-hour periods, God established the measuring of time. On the fourth day, God created two lights to mark the separation between the light and the dark, the day and the night. These creative days are not geological ages of hundreds of thousands of years, but twenty-four-hour periods. There is nothing in the text to indicate that these creation days were anything other than twenty-four-hour periods. Instead, the text indicates that these days can only be 24-hour periods. While the term day, yom, can refer to the part of a day called morning, when the term day, yom, is joined with the numerical value, it denotes a 24-hour period. As well, the evening and morning division form the Jewish reckoning of a day. 
Whereas the Western world's day is from midnight to midnight, the Jewish day is from sunset to sunset. To this very day, the Jews reckon a day from sunset to sunset. And this testifies to the creation narrative. There is also the separation of waters with the expanse between the two. This expanse separates the atmospheric waters from the terrestrial waters. In other words, God established a boundary between the water vapor in the sky, i.e. the clouds, and the bodies of water on the earth. Job says in Job 38, 8-10, Who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment in the thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed the boundaries on them. In Psalm 33, verse 7, the psalmist says, God, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. The third work of creation is seen in the phrase, God made, in Genesis 1, 7, 1, 16, 1, 25, and 1, 26. God made the expanse. God made the true great lights. God made the beast of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Genesis 1, 7, 1, 16, 1, 25, 1, 26. Again, the third work of creation is seen in the phrase, God made. Made, hasa, means to manufacture or fabricate. The usage of this term shows that what God divinely intended to produce became a reality. It is of interest that there are now two terms used which describe God's creative acts, created and bara. Both terms involve aspects of producing or fashioning. The term create, bara, identifies that the creation as a whole was made from nothing previously existing. Whereas the term made, chasa, describes how God formed specific objects from that time, space, and matter which he produced. For example, in Genesis 1-3, the text is clear that on day one, God brought time, space, matter into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. You see, everything that God would need to create, He brought into existence on day one. Everything that He put into existence was new. It was not created from any previously made material. At this point, earth, i.e. matter, was without form and empty. On the next six days, God made Asa, God, that is, he fabricated that which was without form into something with form, and furthermore filled what was previously empty. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, it says that in six days the Lord made Hasa the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Though on that moment of creation the heavens were empty, but he filled them with stars and planets. Psalm 96, verse 5 says that all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord Hasa made the heavens. The earth was empty, but he filled it with vegetation, fish, birds, cattle, creeping things, and even humanity. Psalm 86, verse 9, All nations whom you have made, Asa, shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Psalm 95, and 5, verse 5, The sea is his, for it was he who made it, Asa, and his hands formed the dry land. Now, Pueyo, the Greek equivalent of the term Asa, means to make, produce, or cause. This term is used in the New Testament to show that God is the causator and creator of all things. In Acts 14:15, Paul said, Man, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made poieo, or hasa, the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. Later in Acts 17, 24-25, 
Paul says, the God who made Poyea or Hasa, the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That God is revealed as the causator and creator excludes any evolutionary process. As well, note that in both those passages of Acts, Paul is preaching the gospel and begins the message of the Redeemer by pointing them first to the Creator. You, my friends, you cannot know God the Redeemer without knowing God the Creator. The fourth work of creation is seen in the phrase, God placed, in Genesis 1, 17, 18, and 2, 15. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Again, the fourth work of creation is seen in the phrase God placed in Genesis 1, 17 to 18 and 2, 15. Placed, Natan, means to set or appoint. Only twice in the creation narrative is the term placed used. The creation of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the creation of humanity. First, I'd like you to see that the term demonstrates that God created with an order. He did not just randomly throw paint on a canvas, but rather carefully chose where he'd placed each object of his creation. Second, the term also denotes that God created with purpose. Every act of God has been purposely pre-planned and preordained. Romans 8.28 declares that we know God causes all things to work together for good according to his purpose. Ephesians 1.11 declares that according to his purpose, he works all things after the counsel of his will. God created the sun, moon, and stars for the purpose of giving light, governing day and night, and separating light and darkness. God created humanity for the purpose of tilling and tending the earth, as well as for God's glory and honor. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of you they existed and were created. Next, the fifth work of creation is seen in the phrase God formed in Genesis 2, 7, 8, and 19. Genesis 2, 7, 8, and 19. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground. There he placed the man whom he had made. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. Now the verb formed, yasar, means to plan and fashion. Here now is a third term for God's creative act. The first two terms, create, bara, and made, hasha, involve aspects of producing and fashioning. Create, bara, is to fashion from nothing, previously existing, and made, hasha, means to form specific objects from that time, space, and matter previously fashioned. The term formed, yasar, is used to depict the idea of planning like an architect in designing a blueprint. Consider Isaiah 37, verse 26. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Yashar. Now I have brought it to pass. Isaiah describes this act as a potter fashioning clay. Isaiah 29, verse 16 says, You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Hence, the verb yasar, 
formed depicts God taking a hands-on approach in planning and fashioning his creation. You see, God was hands-on when he created the universe. Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed Yasar, the earth, and made it. He established it. He did not create it a waste place, but formed Yasar, it to be inhabited. He was hands-on when he created the earth. Jeremiah 33, verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed Yashar, it, to establish it. The Lord is his name. Yahweh his hands on when he created the seasons. Psalm 74, 17, You have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made Yashar summer and winter. God was hands-on when he made the mountains, Amos 4.13. For behold, he who forms, Yesar, mountains, and creates the wind, and declares to men what are his thoughts. He who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. God was hands-on when he made the sea and the dry land, Psalm 95, verse 5. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed, Yesar, the dry land. He was hands-on when he made the birds and the animals, according to Genesis 2.19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. Again, God formed Yasar, every beast. The Lord was hands-on when he designed man's heart, Psalm 33.15. He who fashions Yasar, the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. Yahweh was hands-on when he designed man's ears and eyes, according to Psalm 40, excuse me, Psalm 94, verse 9. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed Yasar, the eye, does he not see? He was hands-on when he made man and woman, Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed Yasar, man of dust from the ground. He was also hands-on when he gave humanity a spirit, in Zechariah 12-1. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms Yasar, the spirit of man within him. This hands-on approach strengthens the creation narrative. God took a hands-on approach in forming and filling the universe, leaving no room for evolution. The sixth and final work of creation is seen in the phrase, God blessed, in Genesis 1.22. That God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Genesis 1:28 God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The sixth work of creation is seen in the phrase God blessed in Genesis 1:22 and 28. The verb blessed barak refers to being under divine favor resulting in prosperity and abundance. The creator grants his creation the ability to procreate their species. This blessing includes three aspects be fruitful, multiply and fill. Be fruitful is the act of procreation itself. Multiply refers to an abundance of progeny. Fill means to be fully stocked. It is interesting that at creation, God placed no limitation or controls on population. In fact, God views children specifically as the reward of his blessing. Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. In response to the humanistic ideas of population control, consider the following illustration. There are currently 7.5 billion people in the world. The size of Texas is approximately 7.5 trillion square feet. In theory, you could place every person in the world in the state of Texas with a 1,000 square feet, that is a 31.63 feet by 31.63 feet of space per person. 
Now, certainly this does not leave room for housing, roads, business, and other needs. However, it demonstrates that problems with the population has nothing to do with space. The earth has plenty of room if conserved properly. One of the problems with population is that there exists a destructive concentration of population in a particular area. Due to humanity's sin nature, people have an inclination to sin. A greater concentration of people in a particular region produces a greater propensity for sin. A great example is in Genesis 11, 5-6. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Consequently, an overcrowding of people in a given area results in an increase of poverty, crime, murder, and other issues. God said to fill the earth, not to stay in one area of the earth. Sadly, the idea of population control has been used to propagate ungodly means of birth control, such as abortion, euthanasia, and forced sterilization. Interestingly, the creative work of blessing humanity is the first recorded time that God speaks directly to his creation. It is at this moment in creation that the Creator becomes a personal God who communes with humanity. So friends, in the beginning, God said, called, saw, created, separated, made, placed, formed, and blessed. You either believe it or you do not. The universe and all it contains are not the result of evolution's natural processes or random mutations. Also, God did not use evolution to create the world as theistic evolutionists would purport. God created, made, and formed all that exists. He planned and produced it, fashioned and formed it, declared it, and decreed it. There is just no room for evolution. God supernaturally created the universe, the earth, and the human race in six literal 24-hour days. This idea put forth by progressive creationists that the days of creation were long ages in which God progressively injected himself denies what the tested historically true narrative states. If you do not believe the truthfulness and the accuracy of Genesis 1, friend, you fall victim to cunningly devised fables, and you will be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Furthermore, if you deny the Creator, you will deny the Redeemer, who is the Creator, and you will butcher the message of the Gospel. The message of the Gospel does not begin with Jesus died, but that God created. As apologist Francis Schaeffer once said, that if he only had an hour to spend with an unbeliever, he would spend the first 55 minutes talking about man being created in the image of God and the last five minutes on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus to restore man to that image. I challenge you to heed the warning of Galatians 1, 8-9. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. As well, let us heed the warning of Revelation 22, 18-19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. See, friend, if you tamper with the message of Genesis 1, you create another gospel which does not save but leaves people dead in their trespasses and sin. Regarding the importance of the Genesis 1 narrative, consider the words here of theologian Douglas Kelly. He says there is no doubt that the biblical vision of man as God's creature whom he made in his own image, 
has had the most powerful effect on human dignity, on liberty, on the expansions of the rights of an individual, on political systems, on the development of medicine, on every other area of culture. How different from the humanistic viewpoint of man is merely an evolved creature, not made in God's image because there is no God. Such a premise has enabled the Marxist totalitarian states conveniently to liquidate millions of their citizens because of the assumption that there is no transcendent person in whose image these citizens are created, no being to give these citizens a dignity and a right to exist beyond what the state determines. Friends, this is how a denial of God as creator plays out in day-to-day living. If you reduce Genesis 1 to mythology, God becomes a myth. Believe that life is the result of chance, then chance is sovereign and not God. A non-sovereign God is not any God. You remove the God of the Bible and you remove truth and morality from the world. You remove truth and morality and you have a world dictated by lies and immorality. Is that a world you wish for your children and grandchildren? Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, creator of the world, creator of the universe, creator of everything that is in it, including humanity, we come before you now. We come to you, Father, through the precious blood of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Father, we give you all the praise and the glory that you are the sovereign one, the one who said, and it was, the one who created, who formed everything with purpose and a plan. Father, we come to you and give you the praise and glory that is due you. Father, I ask that you would forgive us for when we are deceived by the philosophies of this world, when we embrace and accept philosophies that do not align with your word, because the world tells us that your word is not to be trusted. Father, know indeed your word is clearly truth. It is a proven historical record, and therefore what it says is true. We can trust it, and Father, forgive us for any time when we have not trusted it. Oh, Father, I ask and pray that you would renew within us a sense of who you are, not just as our Redeemer, but first and foremost as our Creator. Because you are our Creator, you're our Lord, you're our God, and we must worship you as such. Father, I pray that as we go forth, we'll go forth rejoicing and giving you all the praise, not just as Redeemer, but first and foremost as our Creator. To you be praise and glory forevermore. Amen.